Well, these feel like unsettled times to me. Uh, Australian politics seems more shrill than normal. Is that just my imagination? Economists seem to be on tenterhooks. Global politics, quite uncertain, as there's a sort of gravitational shift from the West to the East, and a quite unpredictable character in the White House. Whatever you make of his policies, the unpredictability creates anxiety for many. There's also a significant uh, mood shift in the world against the church. I've uh, probably quoted before the Ipsos poll from just last year that found that 63% of Australians think that religion does more harm in the world than good. Only three nations of the 20 that were polled have a lower view of religion than Australians do. And within the Christian church itself, there's more division than there's been in quite a while. I recently spoke to a principal of one of the theological colleges in Australia who said he has never seen so much bickering amongst Christians, especially across the progressive conservative line, in his uh, 20 years in theological leadership in this country. And that's before we even begin to think of the anxiety rates, uh, the clinical anxiety rates in Australia, which are apparently going through the roof, especially among young people. And if I'm honest, uh, I've had a bit of a wobbly year myself. Partly the busyness and travel, which I intend to make up to you, by the way. Partly the sadnesses I've watched many of you go through. Partly my health, partly strains on long-term ministry relationships. Not in the staff team, I might happily add. But it's been wobbly. Uh, don't feel sorry for me, I'm feeling pretty chipper at this end of the year and I'm well aware that many have faced anxieties beyond what I could imagine. All I'm saying is that I personally feel the relevance of this passage today. I really do. With its encouragement in verse 6 not to be anxious and its promise in verse 9 that the God of peace will be with us. Anyone feeling like they want a bit of that? I'll have two this morning, thanks. Two quick caveats before we really get going. Uh, firstly, I'm not talking about clinical anxiety uh, today. Um, much could be said about that. Um, if you have an anxiety condition, this sermon is no more a fix than if you had a broken leg this morning and I was preaching on Jesus healing the lame man. There's good stuff in Philippians 4, even for those suffering depression and anxiety, but I think the Lord would prefer you went to your GP and took your medication than find the key to your problems in this passage. So I'm not talking about clinical anxiety. Uh, the other thing to say is that anxiety isn't inherently wrong. It's not. Uh, it's well known among readers of ancient Greek that verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, is what's called a permissive imperative in grammar. Permissive imperative. It's not a command. It doesn't read as, don't you dare be anxious. 
I mean, how to increase anxiety, <laughs> all right? Uh, it's permission. Grammatically, it's let yourself not be anxious, which is bad English, but it's good Greek. Paul himself admits to his own anxiety without any embarrassment in uh, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. I face daily the pressure of my anxiety, same word used here in Philippians, for all the churches. Well, with those two caveats in place, I want to uh, walk through our passage in four simple moves. Peace in the church, peace with the world, peace in prayer, peace through practice. Let's uh, take these in turn and hopefully you have a Bible open um, or you've at least memorized the passage like Andrew Wiseman. Peace in the church. Uh, There are several hints in the letter to the Philippians, as we've been walking through it these uh, couple of months, that Paul was very concerned this church wasn't getting along as it should. So if we were to wind back to chapter 2, verse 2, we read, Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. And there's this whole section about being of one mind. And toward the end of chapter 2, in say verse 14, Paul says, do everything without grumbling or arguing. So something's going on in Philippi. Now in chapter 4, verse 2, Paul explicitly names two church members that he knows aren't getting on in church. You imagine this. If all of a sudden I went, Andrew Wiseman, Stuart Holman, right? I mean, what's going on here? Verse 2, I plead with Euodia. I mean, this was read out to the church, right? Euodia and Syntyche had no idea what was coming. I plead with Euodia, I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women... Since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life, if this were a different kind of talk, we'd explore why this is pretty good evidence that women were leaders in earliest Christianity. Uh, The technical language Paul uses here makes it clear these were active official gospel ministers in Philippi. But it's not that kind of talk. We can have that kind of talk later. That would be to miss the main point. These women aren't getting along. Women in ministry, they're not getting along. And notice Paul doesn't take sides. It's beautiful. He just pleads them what? To be of the same mind. These are precisely the same words used back in chapter 2-2 in that unity section. Be like-minded, exactly the same Greek. And then again in chapter 2 verse 5, have the same mind as Christ Jesus who humbled himself for others. And that's why Paul adds in 4.2, have the same mind in the Lord, all right? This is the key idea. It's the mind of the Lord. That is the mind of humility and love that he wants them to share. By the way, if you're wondering who the true companion is in verse 3, who's meant to be helping the mediation, so are all scholars ever since. It was no doubt obvious to the people in Philippi, Um, uh, perhaps it was Paul's nickname for the uh, head minister in Philippi, 
But we, we just don't know. Anyway, the, the point is, the key to peace in the church is having the mind of Christ. We may not agree with each other on theology, on strategy, on decision-making, but we can have the mind of Christ toward each other. Mere agreement is no solution to conflict. The capacity to love while disagreeing is the key to peace. Then Paul pivots to peace with the world. Uh, Remember, maybe second or third sermon uh, in this series, this is a church under pressure from Roman authorities. So if you glance back to chapter 1, end of chapter 1, let's say verse 29... He talks about those who oppose them, and then he says, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for Him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Well, we know Paul's struggle. He was imprisoned by Roman officials when he was in Philippi, and now he's actually writing from a Roman prison. And he says, you're going through the same thing, the same struggle with Roman authority. So that's the background against which you have to read the next lines in chapter 4. So verses 4 and 5. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Uh, The words evident to all are literally evident to all human beings. Paul is clearly opening up the circle. This is about peace with the world. He's talked about peace in the church, and now it's peace between the church and the world. Despite everything they're going through, under pressure from Roman authorities, they are to rejoice and display gentleness. How mad! The temptation must have been to complain against the world, right? to demand their rights. And yet Paul says, "Mm -mm. make evident to all humanity your gentleness. Gentleness. Translators have always struggled to find one English word to translate epiakes. The word translated here, gentleness. It's blooming difficult. I remember spending days during my doctoral work tracking down every instance of epiakes in Greek literature, in the ancient Greek world, just to try and sort of zero it uh, uh, down for what it meant in, in a certain context. But scholars generally agree that it means a humanitarian spirit that goes beyond the obligations of justice. To make your epiakes evident to all human beings is about not just fighting for your own rights according to justice, but moving beyond that to a spirit of generosity, gentleness. I'm very happy with the word gentleness as a one English word translation, so long as we remember that it really means responding to a harsh world according to generosity of spirit. Now, I'm a proud Sydney Anglican. I, I 
But I'm convinced our approach to Scripture is the right one, that the theology of the Book of Common Prayer is without peer in the English-speaking world. I love our bishops and our archbishop, but I reckon we're not so good at making our gentleness evident to all humanity. Anyone want to disagree with me on this? We do sometimes come across as entitled, grumpy, demanding, and we provoke conflict rather than peace. We could do better. Peace in the church, peace with the world. Thirdly, Paul turns to a more personal dimension of peace. Peace in prayer. Verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything. Let yourself not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Wow, this is like memory verse material. I know that's sort of seen as corny nowadays, you know, because we're human beings without memories nowadays. You know, we've got a device and that'll do. Why do you need a memory? But this is worth sticking in there. One profound answer to our anxieties, friends, is to take our requests to God. Presumably, these requests are the things we're anxious about, right? I don't know what it is for you. Our job, health, marriage, kids, friends, failings, our clash with the world. Here is an open invitation from the Lord to bring it all to Him. Bring your requests to God. There are, it seems to me, at least three ways prayer brings peace. First, God answers prayer, (laughs) concretely. You ask Him to do stuff and He does stuff, right? I'm still in that category of, of Christian. Yeah, Prayer isn't just about changing me. No, it's about changing the world. Prayer is doing good. How challenging to hear that IJM pray for five hours a week as a team. Huh? God can and does change our anxious circumstances. And there's actually some examples in Philippians where he says that's exactly the case for the sake of time. I'll just say the second way God can bring peace through prayer is to give us new strength to face the circumstances. Uh, So if you glance down in chapter 4, just a few verses later, say verse 12, Paul says, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through Him who gives me strength. Sometimes God doesn't change the circumstances in response to our prayer. But you find when you bring your request to God, you, you come out of your prayer feeling strong. Like, I can walk through this. Take your stresses to God. Put Him to the test in the good way and watch Him answer. Thirdly, in prayer, 
God will give you an experience of peace. That's what it says. See the end of verse 6? Present your request to God. And what does it say? Don't let me make this up. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I must admit, the Protestant in me wants to intellectualize this and objectify this and say, Paul's just talking about the theological peace through the death and resurrection of Jesus, where we have peace with God and when you pray, you'll know your theology better. I just don't think that's what Paul means. It's what he should mean, of course. But I don't think he's being theological. I think he's being, I can't believe I'm saying this, Mystical. After all, it's a peace that what? Transcends all understanding. Paul is saying if we pray through our anxieties, God will give us more than a change of outlook, more than a change of circumstances, He will give him, us Himself, His peaceful presence. One of the few vivid memories I have about my father, who many of you know I lost when I was nine, um, is hiding behind the door of my bedroom one day, I was probably in trouble with my mother, crying out, I want daddy, I want daddy, I wanted him to come home. Now it wasn't because, you know, I wanted to really talk things through with dad, right? A a discussion. I was seven or eight, I guess. What did I want? His presence. I just wanted his presence. That's it. His touch, his smell, his voice. In my little seven or eight-year-old head, my father was like a protective wall around my worries. And... In a way, Paul says something similar at the end of verse 7 when he says, this peace will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Guard. I love this because Paul is literally under guard when he writes these words. But he knows who his true guard is. The peaceful presence of the Lord. And with this, he turns to his final thought. Peace through practice. Verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters. He doesn't mean finally in the letter. He means this is my final thought on the topic of peace. Finally, brothers and sisters. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. This paragraph comes as close to the methodology of cognitive behavior therapy as you'll find in ancient literature. I'm not a big fan of finding modern psychology in the Bible, but actually, this is spookily close. 
Give attention to your thoughts. Think about your thinking. Don't just think. Think about your thinking. Directing them to noble, pure, lovely things. And then he says, put into practice good habits of life. The stuff they've learned from Paul. This is how a government website, um, Health Direct, puts cognitive behavior therapy. Cognitive behavior therapy is a treatment based on the idea that how you think and act affects how you feel. It can help in many different situations. In CBT, you work with a therapist to recognize the patterns of thinking and behavior that cause you problems. First, you will work with your therapist to understand what are the most troubling problems for you. Two, then you work out what uh, your thoughts, emotions, and beliefs are about these situations. Three, you will identify which of these thoughts, emotions, and beliefs are negative or inaccurate. Four, Working with your therapist, you find ways to challenge them, those thoughts. You might ask yourself, is that true? Or you might ask yourself, so what? Five, you then also identify what behaviors you are doing based on these negative beliefs that you could change. Six, then you can find ways to think and act that are less harmful to you. Now, of course, a modern psychologist won't necessarily agree with the Bible about what are the healthiest thoughts and practices, but the methodology is identical. Think about your thinking and do your doing. And these two together do something marvelous. Paul isn't quite offering therapy, please don't mishear me. But he is saying, if you want to know the blessing of God's peace in your life, direct your thoughts to the things God loves. And doesn't Paul give us a lovely list there in verse 8? And practice the ways of the apostle, which in the context of the letter to the Philippians simply means love, humility, gentleness, the way of Christ. What we fill our heads and lives with will shape our concerns. Yeah? What we fill our heads and lives with will shape our concerns. You can't watch 10 hours of TV a week and open the Bible just for 10 minutes and then wonder why your favorite TV characters seem more real than God. You can't obsess about how you look in this or about how you appear on social media without reminding yourself how God sees you and then fret about why you feel so vulnerable in your sense of self and why you're so vulnerable to the opinions of others. What you fill your head and life with shapes what you're concerned with. You can't pour over the financial review and crave the finer things of life, forgetting to give thanks to God, and then wonder why you're so stressed about money. And here's the fun thing. The Word of God and prayer are so powerful, I genuinely believe you probably only need 10 minutes a day in the Scriptures and in prayer to give yourself perspective for the remaining 23 hours, 50 minutes. I mean, sure, become zealots like IJM and do an hour a day, awesome, awesome. But I, 
What you fill your head with shapes everything. Of course it does. And sadly, the National Church Life Survey from 2016 found that only 37% of us here at St Andrews spend any time in prayer and Bible reading every day or most days. Oh, that 2016 congregation. Glad we got rid of them. Peace in the church by approaching those we disagree with in love and humility, the mind of Christ. Peace with the world by making evident our gentleness. Peace in prayer, bringing all our requests to God, watching Him answer prayers and give us His peaceful presence. And peace through practice, thinking about our thinking and doing our doing. And the glorious promise at the end of this passage is the God of peace will be with us. O oh God of peace, be with us.